Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 63, Lisa Richter, Goldilocks and the Rule 803 Hearsay Exceptions. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Lisa Richter. Lisa is the William J. Alley Professor of Law and a Thomas B. Hester Presidential Professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Lisa teaches evidence and civil procedure and serves as academic consultant to the Judicial Conference Evidence Advisory Committee. Her scholarship focuses on the federal rules of evidence, as well as the rulemaking process. Our podcast today features Lisa's recent article, Goldilocks and the Rule 803 Hearsay Exceptions. The article was published in the William & Mary Law Review. As its name implies, the article proposes a Goldilocks-type solution to recent critiques of the hearsay rule. As Lisa suggests, hearsay critics have often attacked the problem in two ways, either through narrow proposals to reform individual hearsay exceptions, or through broad, sweeping proposals to abolish or completely reconceptualize the hearsay exceptions. Lisa argues that these proposals are, to belabor the Goldilocks metaphor, too hot or too cold. The narrow proposals are practical possibilities, but are inefficient and rather myopic. The sweeping proposals are highly implausible and thus impractical. As an alternative, Lisa proposes a middle ground, one modest enough to be practically implemented, yet robust enough to address the concerns of critics. Lisa, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ed. It's my pleasure to be here. The focus of your article is, of course, on the hearsay rule, the bane of most students, as well as a convenient target for evidence reformers. Can you take a minute and bring us up to speed on some of the recent criticisms of the hearsay rule? What are the complaints, and in your mind, are they justified? Well, of course, the complaints and criticisms of the hearsay rule are probably too numerous to document in the time that we have today. But some of the most salient and recent ones that I discuss in my article deal with a couple of different things. One deals with sort of the justifications for the hearsay rule. Importantly, some scholars have recently suggested that the reliability justifications that underpin many of the hearsay exceptions are ill-founded, right? And that we just shouldn't be engaged in the enterprise of trying to gauge the reliability of human statements. Perhaps it's an impossible task, but importantly, not the one that we should be thinking about in deciding whether to admit hearsay. And secondly, even to the extent that reliability upon which many of our hearsay exceptions is premised is an appropriate inquiry that the exceptions get it wrong, that they have not accurately captured the reliability of hearsay exceptions, uh, pointing to empirical research or the lack thereof supporting some of the most important hearsay exceptions. Of course, namely, as I have written upon hearsay, uh, researched hearsay, uh, looked at many scholarly proposals regarding hearsay, 
the chief villain in the story seems to be the Rule 803 hearsay exceptions, the present sense impression and excited utterance. So it's funny that the thing that everyone wants to abolish is the name of the podcast, but that's, I guess, how it goes. Uh, What sorts of reforms do these critics propose in response? Yes, there are really two varieties, if you will. One, I would characterize as a very narrow or targeted reform. Lots of very able scholars looking at individual hearsay exceptions, uh, like the present sense impression or excited utterance, for example, and thinking about specific changes to the requirements for those exceptions that might enhance their reliability. Or uh, some scholars have suggested to abolish the excited utterance uh, altogether. Um, So I would characterize those as narrow exception specific reforms on the one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the continuum, all the way on the other end, I would posit, are sort of uh, proposals for very sweeping reforms uh, that would affect the entire hearsay regime of Article 8, not focused on Rule 803, not focused on specific exceptions, but focused on the entire regime. So one very notorious one of recent times was Judge Posner in a concurrence in a 2014 opinion, basically proposed abolishing all of the hearsay exceptions in favor of a case-by-case analysis of hearsay statements by trial judges for reliability. So those are really the two varieties. Undo everything in Article 8 and replace it with some wholly different paradigm or pretty narrow targeted reforms to specific hearsay exceptions only. And you don't like either of these approaches. Why don't you like the narrow exception reforms that, well, we don't like the excited utterance rule, for example. So what we're going to do is we're just going to either tweak it or abolish that particular exception because it doesn't have an empirical basis. Right. Well, there are a couple reasons why I have suspicion about exception-specific reforms. One is I think that one of the criticisms of the hearsay regime is its undue complexity, right? The idea that there are so many different exceptions and so many different requirements within them that it becomes so laborious and complex that trial lawyers who are supposed to be able to sort of have these in their pocket can't keep track of all the requirements. So when we make changes to exceptions one at a time, We're just increasing the complexity of the exceptions. You have to remember, oh, this one has this feature, but this one doesn't. So that's one modest criticism of that. Another relates more broadly to rulemaking and the fact that any exception or any change to the rules takes years and years to research, to confer about, to propose. And then, of course, it has to go through the public comment process through the Standing Committee, the Judicial Conference, the Supreme Court, and finally to Congress. And so the concern is if we make a change to just one exception that may have bearing on others, we're being inefficient. We might have to restart the entire process when we run across a similar concern that is involved with a a related exception. So that's another concern. And the last one I'll articulate is unintended consequences. So many of these exceptions do share reliability justifications and common features that if you change one, you might change the interpretation of others or you might have some unintended consequences for others. So I think the advisory committee has amazing peripheral vision. They definitely strive to think about all the potential ramifications of any single exception amendment. But I think it's really impossible to be sure that you aren't having some unintended consequences. So just target one sort of putting on blinders and thinking about one at a time, I think has its dangers. And so I can see why you might not like the sweeping proposals. So for example, Judge Posner's idea that you would abolish all the categories and establish a case-by-case standard. 
But what about a possible new federal rule of evidence effort? So you create a committee, you think about these things for the next 10 years, and you think systematically. So you don't do it one at a time, and you don't necessarily throw out the baby with the bathwater, but you kind of look at it on a system-wide basis. So I think that sounds like a really fascinating project, Ed, and I wouldn't have any problem with the idea of developing some sort of committee to really take a holistic and long-term view of Article 8 as a whole to see if putting all of the pieces together, we could move things forward and create something slightly better than what we have. So I wouldn't oppose that. Nobody has suggested that. That sounds like a great concept. On the other hand, one thing that I think, and I do note this in the article that needs to be recognized, is a lot of the criticism about the hearsay doctrine really doesn't revolve around exceptions outside of Rule 803. So I take some time in, in the article that we're discussing to go through exceptions in 801 D1, or rather exemptions, uh, for statements of testifying witnesses, and statements of party opponents, and the unavailability exceptions in Rule 804, and even the residual exception in 807. And note that not a lot of controversy attends the operation of those, or to the extent that it does, it has been remedied by Supreme Court precedent, by rules changes, or both. And so really, maybe the place we ought to be focusing and where much of the criticism originates or either terminates is on Rule 803 and those exceptions. And that's why I focused my attention there. Tell me a little bit more about that. I thought that was a really interesting underlying assumption in the paper. And I think you're, you're seeing something there. You want to limit the reforms or you think that most of the criticism is focused on Rule 803. And so effectively, you're following the existing structure of the federal rules that you're going to leave 801 alone and 804 alone, but you want to look at 803. Does it suggest something about how the current 801, 803, 804 distinction makes sense and that we should really try to hold fast to those distinctions rather than lumping them all together? Because certainly when I teach it, I've never really thought that there was a conceptual reason for those distinctions. They're useful from a categorization purpose or a reference purpose, but I've never thought conceptually or theoretically there was a reason to keep them in those separate bins. No, absolutely. The underlying concern, of course, with all hearsay is the potential unavailability to cross-examine the declarant and the reliability of statements made outside of court. So those concerns underlie all of those different categories. But to the extent that those categories address those concerns about hearsay in very different ways from the ways in which Rule 803 addresses them, I think they merit distinct treatment and are creating fewer problems in the courts and certainly in the scholarship and the commentary. And that was what I really did notice about all of the scholarship, regardless of the exception that the author focuses on, regardless of the reform being proposed, however sweeping it may be, it just seems to all come back to those Rule 803 exceptions. So notwithstanding the shared concerns for all hearsay in all of those categories, the most profitable under our nose reform to fix a lot of the distrust, I think, with the hearsay doctrine, I, I really felt resides at the end of the day in those Rule 803 categories. I want to switch over and talk more about your proposal. Your proposal suggests an alternative approach, which is to look at the trustworthiness clause or the trustworthiness exception 
in the business record exception. To start, can you remind us about what that requirement is or what that exception is and how it operates? Yes, absolutely. So for those familiar with Rule 8036, the business records exception, it contains a number of requirements for a business record to be admissible. And these requirements really do revolve around the reliability of documents created by some regularly conducted activity or business in the regular course of business, uh, matters that are documented by employees, insiders to that business at a time when they're fresh and in a way that's important to the operation of the business. If all those requirements are satisfied, we allow business records to be admitted for their truth. But Rule 8036 uh, takes a rather pragmatic view of business records and says, well, while most records created for that purpose that companies rely upon to conduct their daily activities are reliable, they won't all be. There certainly could be circumstances which we can't necessarily define in advance where there might be self-serving documents that may be created with uh, suspect motivations that might not be reliable even though they fit all of those requirements. So Rule 8036 has what I often tell my students is sort of an escape hatch, and it allows the opponent of that hearsay to demonstrate to the court that something about the source of information in the record or its method of preparation demonstrates that it lacks trustworthiness, notwithstanding that it meets those threshold requirements, and gives the court the discretion to exclude it, notwithstanding that it is otherwise covered by the hearsay exception. Then you propose taking that trustworthiness exception and applying it to all of the Rule 803 exceptions. Explain a little bit about how that would work and how does that respond to the concerns of critics? Well, I might take your last question first, if that's all right. Part of my concern is that long-standing criticism of the categorical exceptions, I cite Professor Charles McCormick in my article, involve the inability of any set of rulemakers or drafters in advance to ticket or catalog all reliable hearsay. And uh, Professor McCormick in particular said, gosh, there's going to be reliable hearsay that we ought to receive in court to ascertain the truth that won't fit within these preordained exceptions, and it'll get left out. And we should have that hearsay. It should come in. Conversely, there's going to be unreliable hearsay that we don't want that will fit these preordained categories. And as I note in the article, that the residual exception in Rule 807 really responds to Professor McCormick's criticism that the categorical exceptions are going to be under-inclusive. It lets judges say, hey, this hearsay doesn't fit any of these categorical exceptions, but it has these uh, guarantees of trustworthiness. It ought to be here, and I have the discretion to let it in. But there has been no response to the criticism that unreliable hearsay might fit into some of the categorical exceptions. But when you look at the commentary, it really is the potential for some of the Rule 803 exceptions, particularly the present sense impression exception and the excited utterance, to admit what might be in the particular circumstance really unreliable hearsay statements that creates real distrust, I think, about the hearsay regime as a whole. But what you know, if the exceptions say if it fits these requirements, it is reliable and it should be admitted. When common sense and indeed empirical evidence suggests not all present sense impressions or excited utterances will be reliable. So I think the concern about admitting unreliable hearsay is the one that needs to be addressed. The trustworthiness exception from 8036 addresses it by virtue of its operation. 
It presumptively admits those present sense impressions and excited utterances, but it gives the opponent at least a tool to show to the court something about this circumstance. This was somebody with potential culpability at an accident scene, making excited, um, but very self-serving statements about the cause of the accident. Yeah, maybe it fits Rule 8032, but it's patently unreliable in the context, and you judge have the discretion to keep it out. And so I think that's how the trustworthiness exception responds to that really longstanding and overarching concern. I really like that symmetry argument that you make. So you have rules, which are what all those exceptions are, and the problem with rules is that they are over and under inclusive. So you need safety or escape valves, and what you have is Rule 807, which is one kind of escape valve, and what you're proposing, this trustworthiness requirement, is the other escape valve on the other side. But now let me let me push you on this, and let me suggest a reason why maybe we don't want symmetry, or at least symmetry is not justified in this case. In the case of 807, what you're concerned about is if the exceptions are under-inclusive, then the system is not able to view evidence that is perfectly reliable. And not having evidence is actually a real problem because the absence of evidence is a bigger problem. Right. What you're proposing, though, is that when you have unreliable evidence, then we have to have an escape valve to kick it out. But I would argue that that's less concerning to me than the other way around because, for example, you have an evidence that is admissible under the excited utterance exception, and it's not very reliable, but the jury can see that it's not that reliable, and good cross-examination would just simply point that out. So why do we need symmetry for the over-inclusive side of the problem. Right. Well, I would actually agree with you completely, Ed. So I think if we're going to err on one side, erring in favor of admitting more evidence is the better side upon which to err. And indeed, our current structure does exactly that. Also importantly, I do point out in the piece, there are many out there who would say, Yes, maybe the present sense impression and excited utterance, and I'm picking on them, but in the paper I talk about other Rule 803 exceptions as falling within this same criticism, are capable of admitting some unreliable hearsay, but so what, right? They are sufficiently predictable. We know what fits. Litigants know what fits. Judges know how to apply it. And as you just suggested, the jury is capable of assessing. And I acknowledge that I don't think that this is something, a reform that we have to necessarily have that we can't live without. But what I suggest is there is this increasing sort of crescendo of complaint and distrust about the hearsay doctrine, about these 803 exceptions in particular. And it's leading many to suggest just throw the entire regime out, which is working very well, which is functioning quite well in the federal case in most instances, out of this distrust. And so what I'm suggesting, I guess, is this systemic symmetry, I think, would heal a great deal of that distrust. It would eliminate that tension that, boy, how can this regime be credible if it's capable of admitting, or it says that these types of statements are necessarily reliable when I know that not to be true. So I would agree with you. I think the over-inclusive nature is less troubling than the under-inclusive. I don't think this reform is one that has to happen, and I don't suggest that in the paper. But to the extent that the criticism mounts and some reform happens as a result, I'd much rather see this. I think it creates a symmetry that will eliminate a lot of the distrust, but it doesn't throw out the excited utterance or present sense impression. 
And indeed, that's one of my big concerns about the single exception reforms is they're going to eliminate more evidence than this reform would. Now, let me take the other extreme, right, just to be a pain. Here's the question that I really want to ask you. You really feel like you want to keep the existing setup or the existing structure. And you're okay with doing some reform, but you don't want to throw the whole system out. Why? To my mind, it seems that based on modern social science, we kind of have very different views of how to ensure reliable decision-making versus what traditionally we thought would result in reliable decision-making. If that's the case, then why not scrap the entire hearsay regime? And maybe this goes back to my earlier proposal, which is that people should sit down and engage in a new project where they figure out new rules. But why not do something like that? Surely there are going to be growing pains if you impose a, a brand new regime. But that would be a sign of the times, I think, or a sign of really taking the empirical literature seriously. What do you say about that? So a couple of things. One, I would hearken back to our conversation about your very intriguing idea of some hearsay think tank that would operate on a very long term. I like your decades long, like the original advisory committee type project to really re-examine all of the regime and think about a comprehensive reform with many minds at the table and lots of opportunity for dialogue to reflect modern decision-making norms. I think that's a great idea. And I also think that if the time is taken to do the project in that comprehensive way, we might come up with something that is more contemporarily relevant. So I don't oppose that. However, I think the likelihood of that happening and gaining traction is very limited. And I guess my concern is that shorter sort of year, two-year projects might result in some of these proposals that I have criticized or, or commented on that I might think are ill-advised, that might be a false step, that might not be taken with that long 10 years approach. So I think that is something to be concerned about. But as you posit it, uh, not a big problem. Uh, the other thing is I do think the dislocation costs for lawyers and judges of completely throwing out the regime I cannot be ignored. I, I think we have seen that with Crawford, as I note in the paper, Crawford constitutionally mandated and therefore no choice. And of course, lots of growing pains we're still living with. But when you have a constitutional foundation, there's really no option. With hearsay here, we do have a choice. And so I think the cost litigation is already expensive. The trial is vanishing. So to the extent that we impose greater dislocation costs, by really throwing out a lot of rules that, as I've said, if you read the federal cases, are functioning quite adequately. That should give us reason for pause. But I don't object. I like your tenure idea. Maybe we should start something. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, final question for you. What's next? Are you planning additional work in this space or are you planning other projects? Well, right now I am finishing up a piece that I have co-authored with Dan Capra at Fordham, and it is on, apropos of our conversation, rulemaking in a broader sense. There's a lot of controversy over whether and under what circumstances the federal rules of evidence should be changed. Lawyers are very attached to them as our judges, and there is a lot of resistance to amendment and alteration. So we've set about working on kind of a blueprint for the circumstances in which a rule change of some sort really is important. Talking about technological, cultural change, constitutional shifts, 
that really mandate some update or modification of the federal rules of evidence. And so we're using recent amendments and pending amendments to illustrate uh, under what circumstances change really is necessary to keep the rules up to date. Well, Lisa, thanks for taking the time to talk about the world of hearsay reform and explaining the merits of what you term the Goldilocks solution. Great having you on the show. It was a delight. Thank you, Ed. There's much to like in Lisa's proposed hearsay reform. It's practical. It doesn't radically alter the hearsay landscape, making it potentially tolerable to practitioners and judges while at the same time addressing the concerns of various critics. It has a certain elegance. I may have argued in the interview that symmetry isn't necessary, but that doesn't mean that the symmetry isn't aesthetically pleasing. You have rules, the hearsay exceptions, as well-worn or well-trodden presumptions, but you have escape valves, both to admit or not to admit, where the burden falls on the party looking for a special exception. And ultimately, the proposal has theoretical justification. For many of us, although folks like Justin Severe may disagree, the point of the hearsay rule is to promote more reliable evidence. And on its face, Lisa's proposal does just that. That said, as an academic, I still circle back to my desire for more. As I think Lisa readily admits, her proposal is great as a temporary stopgap or as a compromise, but it's not the ideal. What I'd really like us to think about is how the hearsay rule, and perhaps not even just hearsay, but all evidence, should look in a modern social scientific world. Maybe we should start thinking about a super long-term project, much like the Model Code of Evidence, which was developed in the 1940s and then decades later influenced the Advisory Committee to the Federal Rules in the 60s and 70s. For example, what if we created a subcommittee for each hundred series of the Federal Rules, and that subcommittee was tasked with creating a new model for thinking about character evidence or expert testimony or hearsay? What if each subcommittee informally met each year, perhaps in conjunction with the AALS conference? Might something come of that? There's an old proverb that says that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. I think we evidence academics might benefit by playing this kind of long game. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Megan Cole, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.